Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to a new criminal case. Between 1987 and 1990, a threatening shadow was cast over the Canadian city of Toronto. Multiple rapes committed by a mysterious rapist shook the peace of its inhabitants. The Scarborough Rapist, as he was dubbed by the media, played with the nerves of the police and left no trace of his path. Worse, none of his victims had a clear memory of him because he always drugged them to sleep before sexually assaulting them. When an unexpected DNA sample finally traced him, the police discovered a violent, immoral, and morbid universe which was also recorded by the assaulter himself. Gradually, the police discovered that the Scarborough rapist had never acted alone and had always worked in partnership with his wife and accomplice, whose only motive was to satisfy him and make him happy. The couple in question is Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka a young, beautiful couple very much in love with each other and with a whole life ahead of them. But behind the smiles and love that they share were two troubled and demonic personalities, enveloped by the most wild cruelty. No one could have discovered their secret, not even their families. How did it all begin? How did this young couple, barely married and with the bright future ahead of them, fall into this murderous circle without the slightest pity for their victims, sparing them no abuse? No horror. I invite you to discover with me the story of Ken and Barbie, the monsters of Scarborough, and the unexpected event that precipitated their arrest. It was the evening of January 6, 1993, in Toronto. The police station of the small town St. Catherine's, Carla Homolka, a young 24-year-old blonde woman, came to report an assault and abuse. She had left her husband's home in a hurry that evening. It was purely survival instinct. If she had waited one minute more, her husband would have killed her. She had multiple wounds, a swollen face covered with bruises and ecchymosis. Her husband had struck her several times with a bedside lamp, and she could do nothing to defend herself. When the policeman started to question her, Carla Homolka burst into tears, too upset to answer anything. She was later sent to hospital for treatment. The next day, the police decided to arrest Paul Bernardo. Carla's husband. The police were reminded of another event that had happened three years earlier, when he was so violent towards his wife. In 1993, the Ontario police were still actively searching for a perpetrator who had committed several rapes and murders in the area. In 1990, thanks to the indication of some victims, a sketch could be released. He 
he looked very much like Paul Bernardo himself. The police then knocked on his door to question him and were completely fooled. In front of them, instead of the assailant, they had imagined there was a young man who was very well-groomed, polite and pleasant, who graciously invited them in and was ready to cooperate like those who have nothing to reproach themselves with. This raised doubts among the police, who thought they were on the wrong track. However, within the framework of the investigation, they had collected spit samples and blood tests. Paul Bernardo agreed to submit without any resistance. Paul Bernardo was not the only one implicated. 229 other suspects were subjected to the same tests as him. 229 suspects, it was a rather significant number. The time required to check everything, to question them, to wait for the results for the analysis. And let me remind you that we are talking about the beginning of the 90s. And this could take months or even years to finally arrive at tangible results. Carla Hamalka put an end to all these investigations and doubts. She confessed everything to her uncle. Paul Bernardo, the man who had shared her life for the past three years, was indeed the elusive Scarborough rapist, the man who since 1988 had raped more than 40 girls and murdered three of them, all underage girls, all living in the same area as them. At the time of the disappearances, the whole city of Toronto was shocked. Not to mention that the fact that the missing girls were not runaways or rebels, but middle-class, college-going students who were close to their parents and not at all problematic. The unexpected revelations of Carla Homolka resulted in a shockwave. In the span of a few days, the young woman became the only witness and was questioned by the police of the St. Catherine's police station who wanted to know more. She then led them to the VHS tape recordings that showed Paul Bernardo her husband raping and assaulting his victims. The same evening, following her statement, the police seized a hundred videotapes at the couple's home. Their content was chilling. The screams of the victims begging and crying were unbearable to hear. From then on, the investigation accelerated and all the missing pieces of this horrible plot gradually came together. Now that Paul Bernardo, denounced by his wife and tracked by DNA, was found guilty. The police discovered at the same time the other side of the story and the role played by Carla in this crime. A capital role and not anything less. But before we go any further into our story, let us get to know Miss Bernardo a little better. Carla was born in Port Credit, Ontario on May 4, 1970. Her parents are Dorothy and Karel Homelka. Karel is a Czechoslovakian immigrant who fled communism in the early 60s to the United States before settling permanently in Canada, where he met his future wife. He worked as a traveling salesman, selling lamps and other items at flea markets. Dorothy worked as an assistant at St. Catherine's Hospital in Vancouver. The Homolka family was well-liked and respected by their neighbors. They had a little nice clubhouse with a pool, and all the kids in the neighborhood came to swim in it during summers. Carla, like the two young sisters, Tammy and Lori, were very well taken care of, and together they were a perfect trio of mischievous and inseparable little blondes. Their childhood was peaceful, well surrounded by their parents who didn't refuse them anything and treated them with great care. As a child, Carla was fascinated by the world of Disney princesses and dreamt of becoming like them when she grew up. A deep desire of owning a castle, beautiful clothes, and meeting Prince Charming. She spent her entire childhood in a protective and enchanting bubble, surrounded by her dolls. In adolescence, however, the transformation of the young woman in the making is crucial to note. She became rebellious, 
dominant, disrespectful towards her parents, who continued to keep a low profile towards her and considered her change in attitude as a phase in building her own personality. She grew hatred especially towards her father and even called him Dom Czech, openly mocking his bad pronunciation in English and his job as a salesman in the market. Among her friends in high school, she dominated them all, proclaiming herself their leader and deciding what to do and not. Just like at home, she replicated the same pattern with so much confidence and control that her friends were afraid of her. Carla's arrogance grew with each day, with the world of Disney princesses now withdrawn into oblivion. She turned to thrillers and black magic books. She was fascinated by human sacrifices, spiritualism, the world in the afterlife, and also studied the occult passionately. Following the gothic wave, she started to dress entirely in black and practiced seances with the help of Ouija boards. She was convinced of having supernatural powers. She was fascinated by the corpses of animals and did not hesitate to dig up the corpses of cats, dogs, and hamsters buried by their owners. One day during a lunch break in the high school cafeteria, she had once said to her close friend, You know, I like to draw dots with a black marker on someone's body, then connect it all with a sharp knife and pour vinegar over the wounds. A very good student and usually always among the first during her childhood, Carla began skipping classes and her grades in high school took a hit. She was no longer interested in studying and wanted to do something else, such as being a medium or a tarot card reader. True to her rebellious attitude, she also started hanging out with a bunch of young, drunken losers with whom she went out every night. When she came home a little too late and drunk, neither Dorothy nor Carol found anything wrong with it. Convinced that their daughter's behavior was common for all teenagers and that she would eventually calm down. She was difficult, stubborn, dominant, insolent, and increasingly withdrawn. Carla only found comfort in animals, which she adored more than anything else. When she finished high school in order to have some pocket money and to stay in constant contact with her little protégés, the teenager got a job as an assistant in a veterinary practice that also served as a pet store the Marlindale Animal Clinic. She was passionate about her work and devoted to herself, receiving admiration from her boss who saw the making of a future veterinarian and encouraged her to direct further studies in this direction. Carla was so competent and passionate about her work that her boss asked her to accompany him to a conference on the animal industry organized by a veterinary association in Toronto. She gladly accepted. In October 1987, Carla and her boss went to a prestigious hotel, the Howard Johnson's in Scarborough, which often hosts conferences, meetings of all kinds. While having coffee in the hotel restaurant with a friend, she was approached by Paul Bernardo, a young accounting intern and a recent graduate of the prestigious University of Toronto. He too was accompanied by one of his friends and asked the girls if they could join them. The two girls agreed, all too flattered to be accosted by men in suits and not by pimply teenagers. Carla's eyes met Paul's for the first time. Paul, who was good-looking, was blonde with blue eyes, tastefully dressed, smiling, and very friendly. Carla immediately fell under his spell. Was it a chance meeting or a stroke of fate? It was from this very moment that the love story of the two young people really began. Paul Bernardo symbolized everything Carla had always dreamt of. In high school, she was a part of a woman's club gathering a few teenage girls whose dream was to succeed in getting a rich and ideally older man and to be offered a huge diamond ring as a wedding gift. In 1987, Carla was still only 17 and Paul 23, 
so old enough to fit the criteria of her old club. Apart from his irresistible charm and his incisive blue eyes, the young accountant trainee had something more than the other boys. He had a whole strong and dominant temperament, and that was all Carla wanted. They had their first sexual encounter that same night, and Paul was surprised to find that his new conquest was not a virgin, which actually offended him a little. Over the next few days, Paul and Carla saw each other often, drawn to each other like magnets. And when they left, Carla carried his image with her, haunting her all night. She was upset when he was a little late or when he postponed an appointment, which rarely happened. She had fallen in love and could no longer bear to spend an hour without him. Paul, on the other hand, showered her with expensive gifts, invited her to nice restaurants, paid for all expenses without giving too much attention to the bill and proudly pulling out his MasterCard. He drove a nice car and was in the middle of his role as a future accountant. Carla's eyes were full of stars, and yet, despite the frequent appearances, she knew almost nothing about her lover. To any questions that was a little too discreet, Paul answered that he was not the type to talk about his family and show off his professional success. But in reality, the young man hid a character much darker and more complex than it seemed. In his case, the clothes don't really make a man. If Carla had the chance to grow up with healthy, loving and protective parents, the environment from which Paul came was the opposite. He was born on August 17, 1964, in Scarborough, Ontario. His parents, Kenneth and Marilyn Bernardo. His maternal grandfather was a lawyer in Montreal and gave his mother, Marilyn, a dream childhood and youth of travel and prestigious studies at the best Canadian and British private institutions. However, Marilyn's life took a traumatic turn when she met the man who would become her husband and father of her children in 1959, Kenneth Bernardo. Kenneth Bernardo was born into an Italian family and was the first generation of Italian Canadians. He was a violent, domineering man who mistreated his wife and children and ruled as a tyrant in his home. The couple had three children of which Paul was the youngest. In their neighborhood, the Bernardos were considered to be a perfect and wealthy family. The children had expensive toys, the father drove a luxurious car, the mother was always well-dressed and impeccable. Behind closed doors, things were quite different. Kenneth Bernardo's violence was so unbearable for his wife that she ended up leaving him for a while to meet an old high school friend. Humiliated, her husband brought her home by force, called her names and hit her in front of their children. She gradually sank into a terrible depression. From that moment on, Paul and his siblings were left to themselves. Marlon Bernardo lived as a prisoner in her room, crying or sleeping all day long. She lost interest in her home and family. She did not do housework anymore, did not cook, did not go out shopping, and did not communicate anymore. The family home was transformed into a real slum. The cupboards and the fridge were constantly emptied. The dishes piled up in the kitchen sink without anyone thinking of washing them. Things were just lying around and Kenneth was often absent not worried about the future of his children and his wife, whom he voluntarily neglected. In spite of the dysfunctional atmosphere, Paul sailed through this difficult period with a displeasing ease, almost as if he was living in a parallel world. He was a happy, smiling young boy, adored by the neighborhood moms, who often gave him cakes, books, and invited him to tea parties with their children. He was also a boy scout and enjoyed outdoor activities, including canoeing and swimming. At 10 years old, he knew how to set up a tent, light a campfire, and set traps for nocturnal animals. His father, whom he favored, instilled in him misogynistic ideas and told him always to behave violently with women. 
to always subdue them and to correct them if they disobeyed him. For Bernardo's father, it was better to be violent and to be respected than to deceive without his knowledge. Paul swallowed these teachings, far too young and inexperienced to form his own opinion. Kenneth was arrested for the first time in the late 70s, when he was accused of touching a minor. To avoid scandal and jail time, he was bailed out. After this first incident, which was kept quiet, he turned to one of his daughters, whom he abused repeatedly, even in front of his wife, who was completely worn out and did not react. Paul had also witnessed his father's sordidities on more than one occasion. But the real crushing blow came when Paul was 16 years old. He learned from his mother that Kenneth was not his real father and that he was in fact result of an extramarital relationship with her boyfriend of that time. This revelation shocked and plunged the teenager into black anger. He started to despise his mother and even started calling her a bitch instead of mom. Worse, he even sided with Kenneth when the latter mistreated or violated her. Obviously, she deserved it all. From then on, the teenager understood that his father was right, that kindness and gentleness towards the opposite sex only brought trouble and that if he was to get married one day, his wife would have to be blindly submissive to him. This macho mindset never left young Paul, convinced that all women were fickle and that they must be subjugated at all costs so that they can respect you. Destabilized by this revelation, he began to frequent a gang of small-time criminals and indulge in alcohol and hard drugs. Nevertheless, a good student, he miraculously managed to extricate himself from his addictions and successfully entered the University of Toronto, from which he graduated in business in 1986. Hired by Price Waterhouse in Toronto, Paul Bernardo first worked as an intern before becoming a full-time contract employee. This well-paid job, with its many perks, allowed him to socialize with high society, buy an apartment, and dress in the best brands. At that time, he met a young woman, Nadine Brahmer with whom he fell in love. This relationship soon crumbled because the young man's possessive temperament and his desire to control everything in their relationship. Nadine ended up leaving him, suffocating in this power struggle. To get back to her, Paul burnt her personal belongings, harassed her with phone calls, followed her in the street, and intimidated her before getting tired and giving up. Following this first bitter failure in love, he turned to nightclubs and bars in which he assiduously sat every evening. There, he chatted up with girls, told them about his privileged position and his job as an accountant. He ended up sleeping with them, only to forget about them the next day and go back on the hunt in other spots in Toronto's red light district. His dream, as he told one of his friends, was to buy a farm to store women and have them available at all hours of the day and night. He later simultaneously paired up with two ex-girlfriends of his high school buddies. Both of them ended up leaving him after discovering his dark side. One of them even lodged a complaint against him after he made obscene telephone calls to her in the middle of the night. Paul, fearing he would be fired from his job if the echoes of his love scandal reached his boss's ears, decided to calm down for a while. But that did not last for a long time. In the night of May 4, 1987, he committed his first crime. He abducted a young girl from a bus stop, drugged and raped her in his car, before dropping her off again at the same stop a few hours later, completely unconscious. He repeated the same trick in July of the same year, locating another girl in front of the bus stop again. These two assaults went unnoticed. His unexpected meetings with Carla Homolka in the bar of the Howard Johnson Hotel in Scarborough marked the beginning of a new episode in his life as a pervert who hit his game well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If until now, Paul only had to deal with proud women who neglected him, this young, lonely, just out of high school and a bit naive seemed to stand out, even though he felt truly in love with her. His desire to control everything took over. Unlike his previous chaotic relationships, Carla didn't seem to reject his dominating and possessive nature. On the contrary, she approved of the facts that he harassed her with questions about her comings and goings, about what she should or shouldn't wear, about the color of her lipstick, about the material of her tights and lots more. Approving this exacerbated control on the account of male jealousy, Carla did not try to contradict him and change her outfit if it did not seem to his taste or not correct and appropriate enough for him. Gradually, their love life and especially their sex life took a sadomasochistic direction. Paul became the master, while Carla retreated into that of the slave, weak and wanting to please him at all costs. But this blind obedience eventually bored him. Flattering his ego was obviously not good enough for Paul, who now looked at malicious pleasure in putting down Carla for anything and everything. While he always used to give compliments on her physique, he now found her too ugly, too fat, too neglected, and did not hesitate to tell her openly. Casually, Carla began to take these humiliations as compliments. Despite this disparity, their singular love story was at its peak. The nightly waits in front of the bus stops and Paul and other well-kept little secrets continued in parallel with his tidy life. On the night of December 16, 1987, two months after he met Carla, he raped a 15-year-old girl and then another woman on Christmas Eve. His reputation as a sinister assailant began to intrigue the news. The nickname, the Scarborough's Rapist, was given, which amused him. When he moved with Carla into a new apartment in downtown Toronto, his hold on her became even more staggering. Now he dictated all her rules of conduct and various do's and don'ts on paper notes. One of Carla's friends visiting her home one night came across one of these notes on the kitchen counter and was outraged by its contents. Be a perfect girlfriend. If Paul asks for a drink, bring him a drink quickly and with a smile. Don't scowl. Above all, remember that you are stupid. Remember that you are ugly and remember that you are fat. I don't even know why I have to keep harping on these things when you don't seem to want to change anything. When the friend questioned Carla about the strange note she had read, Carla simply snatched the paper out of her hand and laughed. Oh, that? Those are just Paul's jokes. That's all. Her friend was only half convinced. She felt that something strange linked these two, and it was certainly not love. Paul, driven by his unbridled sexuality, increasing in demand, continued stalking in the streets of the city, ideally at nightfall when there was less traffic. He raped two teenage girls at bus stations one night apart. On October 4, 1988, 
As he was about to assault a girl, she got the upper hand, bravely wounding him with the knife in the buttocks and thighs, and he had to be admitted in the hospital for the following days. This was the first such incident for Paul, who was always used to having the upper hand. He then changed his ploy to avoid exposure and began to spy on his potential victims directly from their bedroom windows. He entered the homes of three young women in Scarborough, tied them up and raped them several times before disappearing into the night. In a small community like Scarborough, rumors of these sexual assaults began to spread. The police first decided to investigate the neighborhood where a teenage girl had been assaulted on the night of May 16, 1990, while waiting for a bus. As part of the preliminary investigation, Paul was asked to provide saliva, semen, and hair samples to the authorities. He was not only the one, the whole male community in the neighborhood was solicited. Paul accepted without any qualms and even welcomed the two agents who knocked on his door with a smile. He was so charming, polite, and well-dressed that the policeman left apologizing for having disturbed him. With Carla, who had since become his fiancée, Paul continued his master-slave relationship. He knew that she would do anything to stay with him. He started being more and more interested in her younger sister, Tammy. He was always welcome at the Homolkas with a lot of warmth and consideration, too happy that their daughter had found a good match that exceeded their expectations. With each of his visits, Carell and Dorothy treated him as a son and future son-in-law and did everything to make him feel at home. Paul sympathized with Tammy, who was in the midst of a teenage crisis, and became her confidant. He even ordered her to keep her virginity until marriage and not give it to the first man she meets. In his crazy head, he had other plans for her. In December 1990, he began to openly tell Carla what he planned to do with her sister. He wanted to possess her, rape her, hurt her, and film her with a video camera. But first, she had to be unconscious, ideally sedated. As monstrous as it may seem, his fiancée agreed and accepted to play the game. She herself was in charge of procuring the sleeping pills in question. Thanks to her job as a veterinary assistant, Carla had the entire pharmacy at her disposal and had no trouble picking up the fatal prescription. With the keys to the practice, she went there at night, retrieved halotane and halcyon tablets, two powerful sedatives usually used in anesthetics during surgery, and returned home with her loot hidden in her purse. On the night of December 23, 1990, just two days before Christmas, the infernal duo put their plan into action. They were invited to spend the night at the Homolkas. While the whole family was gathered around the TV to watch a movie, Paul retreated to the kitchen for a moment to get sodas for everyone. He crushed the tablets Carla provided and put them in Tammy's glass before filling it to the brim with lemonade. Back in the living room, he gloated as Tammy drained her glass in one gulp. Around midnight, the parents went upstairs to bed, leaving the kids to themselves. Tammy sank into a deep sleep, the sedative making its effect. Paul undressed her and raped her while Carla filmed the whole thing with a camera. But when they least expected it, things got out of hand. Tammy started to regain consciousness and vomited. Her spasms were so violent that she ended up choking on her vomit. Panicked, the two young torturers hurriedly dressed her before calling for an ambulance and waking the parents. In the end, the young girl, only 15 years old, died a few hours later in the hospital, suffocated by her spasms and by the vomit that her lungs had absorbed. Neither Carla nor Paul was suspected in this terrible story. The autopsy even declared it as an accidental death. In the end, the Homolkas family buried their daughter and was supported by their future son-in-law, who also shed tears during the funeral. 
thrilled to have escaped without a scratch, the two murderers continued their sordid crime without a shadow of remorse. Paul knew that from now on, he could count on his fiancée to provide him with young girls, preferably virgins, to indulge in his abject cravings. Two months after Tammy's death, Carla found a new victim, a client from her veterinary clinic, a girl named Jane. The two women hit off when Jane's dog was treated and she accepted Carla's invitation to spend an evening at her place and chat over a drink. Not suspecting in any way the cunning plan that was being played out, Jane was easily fooled by Carla. Carla called her fiancé to tell him that the virgin is here, that she is ready. At the height of excitement, Paul jumped in his car and rushed to join them. Just like Tammy Homolka, Jane was beforehand drugged by Carla and already into a deep artificial sleep. The two of them then started to undress her to caress her before Paul raped her under Carla's camera. This time, the victim did not die. Jane regained consciousness the following day in the guest room, awakened by Carla who brought her a mug filled with coffee, telling her that she simply lost consciousness the day before after having ingested several glasses of alcohol and that she had to be laid down. Jane had no memory of the night before. On the night of June 15, 1991, Paul was in his car. He drove slowly, skirting the bus shelters, observing the passerby, trying to locate the most isolated spot when he was approached by a young teenager. Say you have a cigarette? Uh, yes. My name is Leslie. And you? Uh, um, it's Richard. Richard? That's a chick's name. Are there still guys called like that? She was young. Leslie Mahaffey. Blonde. Tall, smiling, almost provocative. Paul could hardly contain himself. She must surely be a virgin. She told him that she went out with friends and that she lived in Burlington and that she came home later than expected that night. She realized that she didn't have her keys anymore and her parents, who are rather fussy about time, were going to give her a hard time with moral lessons. Afraid of being scolded, she decided to return to the bus shelter to think about how she could get in through one of the windows without getting caught. So what are you doing here? I'm a burglar. You're a liar. Yes, it's true. A guy named Richard who burglarizes houses? We've seen it all. Could we take a little walk beforehand, maybe even go for a drink, a real drink somewhere? And you won't tell your parents, right? You know, I'm also a gentleman. When the opportunity arises, I can't resist when a girl is pretty like you. She laughed, flattered by the compliment. She definitely liked him too. Paul knew how to take advantage of his charm. But once in the car, the trap closed on Leslie. Paul took out a knife hidden in the dashboard and pointed it at her throat, telling her not to make the slightest sound or her throat would be slit. He drove off. Arriving at his apartment, he dragged the teenager on the sofa of the living room, removed her clothes, and raped her while filming her. In the next room, Carla heard the commotions. She arrived and grabbed the camera for filming. Later, Paul strangled the teenager, cut her into pieces, and then cast them in fresh cement. Late at night, he dumped the teenager's remains in Gibson River, which runs through the city of Toronto. Back home, he told Carla, Carla, I love you. Let's get married. The next day, Leslie's disappearance was reported to the district police by her parents. The investigation began a taste of deja vu, as the police were convinced that the Scarborough's rapist had struck again. At the Homolka's home, the mood was festive. Paul made his proposal to Carla official. News that her parents greeted with tears of joy. Now it was time to proceed with the preparations. The date and the place of the ceremony already fixed. It could be held on June 29 in the Cathedral of St. Thomas, which overlooked Niagara Falls. Hundreds of invitation cards were sent by the couple's parents to friends, colleagues, bosses, and neighbors. 
Carla chose a wedding dress which had to be similar to that of the Disney princess that rocked her entire childhood. She dreamt of this wedding all her youth. Moreover, the ceremony itself had to resemble a world of fairy tales, a sort of replica of Disneyland. It had to be different. It had to make a lasting impression. And for that, Paul and Carla put all their efforts and did not skimp on the expenses. A week before the big day, a master of the ceremonies was hired to orchestrate the festivities. Carla was to arrive in her sumptuous bridal gown and long chiffon train sitting in a carriage. She would be greeted by a cloud of flowers and confetti thrown by hand-picked bridesmaids. Her father will pick her up as she gets out of the carriage and walked her down the aisle. The bride and groom insisted that her families take part in the rehearsal as this event was of the utmost importance. Any slip-up could ruin everything. For the meal, the fairy tale inspiration continued. Pheasant, poultry pies, crab and lobsters were to be served and toasted with French champagne before ending with an enormous feast. On the day of the wedding, everything went perfect. An array of guests welcomed the bride and groom at the exit of the cathedral. Two doves were projected in the luminous sky of this day of June 29, 1991. White sugar almonds were showered from all sides. Everyone was happy and shared the communicative joy of the Bernardo couple who had just exchanged their vows before the priest. The ceremony was immortalized by six photographers, lined up at the exit of the church, as during the film festival. And yet, no one suspected that behind the radiant smiles and the blonde hair of the two lovebirds hid a secret as repugnant as it is unimaginable. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Vancouver area, a couple was canoeing on Gibson Lake on a hot summer when their boat hit something hard. At first, they thought it was a rock, but then they realized it was a cement block. Caught in the block, they noticed fragments of bone and human flesh. Panicked, they called the police who arrived at the scene in a hurry. After analysis of the remains by medical examiners, Leslie had finally been identified, thanks to one of their wires from her braces. Under pressure from the media and from the families of the missing women, the police formed a special investigation unit, the task force, charged with uncovering the serial rapists that have been shaking the region for nearly four years now. Meanwhile, Paul and Carla enjoy a typical honeymoon under the coconut trees of Hawaii. Back home at the end of their trip, they resumed their respective activities, opened their wedding gifts, and sent thank you notes to all over Canada. They waited until April 16, 1992 to resume their criminal activities. It was Carla who first approached 15-year-old Christian French outside a church. Carla told her that she was lost on the way, that she was not from the area, that she simply cannot decipher a map and that a local woman would be of great help. Christian French climbed into the car without any suspicion, and her captor was driving down the road. Paul Bernardo appeared out of nowhere, climbed into the passenger seat of the car, put a knife under Christian's ear. Christian did not know it yet, but the fate reserved for her by the two murderers was far less than worse nightmare. For several days, the young teenager was repeatedly raped by Paul and even by Carla Homalka tortured, wounded using fragments of broken champagne flutes, and burned to death with cigarette butts. The couple pushed sadism to the point of making the unfortunate woman watch the videotapes showing the rapes of Leslie and Tammy, which they forced her to watch without lowering her eyes even once, under penalty of being killed. At the end of the fourth day of captivity, Kristen French was strangled by Paul, then raped one last time before being thrown into a garbage dump. One more victim in the gloomy record of the demonic couple. However, an unexpected event was going to precipitate the end of the murderous epic of the tandem. 
First of all, the hair, sperm, and saliva samples recovered by police officers a few years earlier in the context of the preliminary investigation on the mystery of the Scarborough's rapist had finally spoken. Paul Bernardo, as well as three other individuals, were declared as likely to be the assailants in question. This discovery put him black in anger, which he poured on his wife. He started to hit her often, throwing objects at her face and voluntarily pushed her down the stairs. Paul knew that the news was tightening around him. Sooner or later, he would be forced to confess to his murders. On the evening of January 6, 1993, Paul unleashed his anger once again on Carla, whom he knocked out with a bedside lamp. The young woman, seriously injured, her face bloodied, had just enough time to run away before it was too late. Accused of domestic violence, Paul was placed under police surveillance. As soon as he was released from the hospital, Carla went to retrieve all her belongings from the apartment and brought them back to her parents' home. She told her uncle, who had remained at her bedside during her hospitalization, everything about the rapes, the murders, and the VHS tapes. Paul was then placed in police custody. Later, while viewing the tapes, the police discovered that Carla Homolka had been an important protagonist in the case. In order to reduce her prison sentence, she agreed to collaborate with the police. On February 17, 1993, Paul was convicted of 43 rapes and three murders, including that of his sister-in-law Tammy, Leslie, and Kristen. His final verdict was not given until 1995. A life imprisonment. Carla, on the other hand, was sentenced to 12 years of criminal imprisonment for manslaughter. Her verdict was slightly contested in Ontario, where it was considered too much lenient for a criminal of her stature. The couple divorced amicably in 1994. Carla was released from prison on July 4, 2005. She has since rebuilt her life in Guadalupe, where she remarried and had three children. She works as a teacher in a community school and gives almost no interviews to the Canadian and American media. Paul, on the other hand, has changed his name to Paul Jason Teal. Since his incarceration in 1993, he has been living in an isolated cell under 24 hours camera surveillance, strictly forbidden to see or talk to other inmates. Thus ends the terrible story of this duo whose cruelty and immorality have been pushed to the extreme. The Ken and Barbie of Scarborough, as they were dubbed by the Canadian media, took the time to shape their idyllic exterior image, which was totally opposite from what they were in reality. Their history, the savagery of their crimes, and their mutual depravity has haunted Ontario and much of English-speaking Canada for a long time. We're at the end of our show for today. So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 